Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. Late last week, they brought the big gun down to Georgia for the final push to get Reverend Raphael Warnock over the finish line. By the big gun, yeah, I mean Barack Hussein Obama, of course, our 44th president. And boy, was he fired up. Since the last time I was here... Since the last time I was here, Mr. Walker has been talking about issues that are of great importance to the people of Georgia. Like whether it's better to be a vampire or a werewolf. This is a debate that I must confess I once had myself. When I was seven. Then I grew up. In case you're wondering, by the way, Mr. Walker decided he wanted to be a werewolf. Which is great. As far as I'm concerned, he can be anything he wants to be. Except for a United States Senator. A record amount of early voting in Georgia is a very good sign that Warnock has Walker on the ropes. But apparently, Herschel had plans and couldn't campaign over the long Thanksgiving weekend. Perhaps because he celebrated the holiday at his permanent residence in Texas. And why go all the way back to Georgia when you could sleep off your food coma at home? I mean, what the fuck? While Warnock has been tirelessly campaigning, kissing babies and shaking hands, I mean, on top of his job as senator of the state, Walker has been lollygagging and lying up a storm, but he sure as hell isn't seriously running for office. Now, listen, this would be funny if he weren't running for Senate. Here's hoping that the Honorable Reverend Warnock wins in a landslide on Tuesday. It won't just save the country from being micromanaged by Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin. But it will save Georgia from the indignity of being represented by a Texan who simply isn't qualified to be their senator. Shit, he's not qualified to be their dog catcher. You know, this can happen to an American that didn't even steal anything, that didn't even hurt anyone. This could just happen to you for saying the wrong idea out loud. Now, I'm not a doctor, but I think that the barometric pressure must have shifted and folks with the propensity for brain aches and insanity are crawling out of the woodwork and creeping the rest of us out. So take, for instance, the artist formerly known as Kanye West. He has let his masked alter ego, yay, out of the bag, and there's just no putting him back in. I don't think Hitler was a good guy. I get the uh, the Hugo Boss uniforms, amazing. Uh, but, I mean, just because you're in love with the design, you're a designer, can we just kind of say, like, you like the, the you like the uniforms, but that's about no, it. No, we, we, no, I, there, there's a lot of things that I love about Hitler. The actor Michael Rappaport, and not one to ever hold back, sums Ye's commentary up like this. You're, you're, there's, there's whole, you think that Adolf Hitler wouldn't have thrown your ass in an oven or shot you in the street and not even thought twice about it you dumb fuck there's no good in him and at this point i believe what was good in you is gone now let's face it when alex jones i mean alex jones is trying desperately to help you walk back a hitler tirade you're fucked 
So sorry, A. Please go get some help. But in the meantime, Elon Musk has kicked A off Twitter. Supposedly forever, but Musk forever is relative. Oh boy. You know, this whole thing happening with Elon Musk and Twitter reminds me of, I think it was Mike Tyson who had that line where he said, uh, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Forget this. Musk didn't immediately cut Ye off for the swastika Star of David that he posted and then quickly deleted on Thursday. But when Ye then posted a not-so-pretty picture of Musk, he was quickly banished from Twitter permanently. Now let's also remember that this is my final tweet, Ye wrote, alongside a paunchy image of Musk half-naked on a yacht. And in an effort to clarify his position on free speech, Musk replied, that is fine, meaning the fat photo, but this is not, he wrote on a deleted swastika tweet. Okay, so I'm glad we finally got that fucking straight. But did we? Well, have they noticed that Elon Musk, since he took over that platform, has cracked down on the sexual exploitation of children? that that has been one of his biggest goals on Twitter, that he has eliminated three of the biggest hashtags used by child abusers selling child sexual abuse material on Twitter. And none of that happened until he took over. Elon is picking fights all over town. I mean, Musk called out Apple for being an anti-competitive monopoly because they charge a 30% fee on content sales made through the App Store. Hard to make a profit when you're giving away 30% off the top, don't you think? Of advancing the narrative opinion and worldview of the left-wing Luniverse. That's why they're triggered, that's why they're so upset, and it's pathetic, and we can see it. But Musk has also accused Apple of censorship, because Apple's policies say that social media apps in their store must have strong content moderation systems. Musk is the only person monitoring Twitter, and Apple's CEO Tim Cook isn't having it. Or the recent wave of anti-Semitism and the quote-unquote hellscape of hate speech that Twitter has become. In his quasi-gentlemanly manner, Stephen Colbert went after Musk in his opening monologue on Thursday, saying, and I quote, Elon, I know you're mad at Apple, but they don't hate free speech. They're mad at you because you freed hate speech. Elon Musk, when he took over Twitter, sent up the bat signal to every person who has felt unable to spread racism, misogyny, uh, homophobia, but also disinformation actors, that Twitter's open for business. A platform that is, like it or not, essential to democratic debate is run by a man who cannot distinguish the public interest from his interest. What's so particularly concerning is that the documented increase in hateful tweets coincides with real-world threats to the same minority groups. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security has warned that domestic and foreign terrorists continue to use their online presence to motivate supporters. Supposedly, Musk and Cook have smoothed over their differences, and we'll see. But here's the deal. This isn't all just happening in a vacuum. Until Thursday, Elon loved having Ye and his millions and millions of followers on Twitter. Ye broke bread with a former president just a week ago. And yeah, that fucking asshole is Donald J. Trump. 
Fox News and Tucker Carlson have promoted him endlessly. Republicans have yet to rebuke him. I mean, scumbags like Alex fucking Jones and Tim Pool gave him a platform. So you have to ask yourself, why? They can't control me. You get what I'm saying? They can control Shaq. They can control Charles Barkley. They can control LeBron James. They can control Jay-Z and Beyonce. Not not you, man. But they can't control me. Okay, here's the answer. Crazy fucking cells. In the economics of entertainment, we all get that. But I think it goes deeper than economics. When you promote a mentally compromised black man hating on the Jews, it says something very specific to your white pseudo-Christian audience. It says that we are so much better than them. When you support Herschel Walker, despite the multitude of strikes against him, it's because you like your black people slow and stupid. Conservative media doesn't celebrate black excellence, and, and my question to you is why? Because it doesn't further their racist agenda. But Yay mouthing off about Hitler hits the spot just right. So P.S. Yay has just announced his run for the presidency in 2024. Trump started basically screaming at me at the table telling me I was going to lose. I mean, has that ever worked for anyone in history? Tell me <laughs> you're going to lose. Tell, Tell him he's going to lose. lose. Tell I'm like, well, well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, Trump. You're talking to Yay. Our own President Biden is not just supporting, but pushing a move to start the presidential primaries in South Carolina, not because he's mad at Iowa, but because Iowa is the whitest state in the entire Midwest and just not diverse enough to deliver the best nominee to voters. And Biden then said, we must ensure that voters of color have a choice in choosing our nominee much earlier in the process. He also said in a letter circulated on Thursday, you cannot be the nominee and win a general election unless you have overwhelming support from voters of color. The DNC has backed the rules change, and if successful, it will be the first time in 20 years that Iowa won't take the lead in deciding our next president. Biden, once again, proves himself to be a champion for civil rights. So good for you, Mr. President. Keep it up. Under President Biden's proposal, states like South Carolina, Georgia, and Michigan, all of which have large African-American populations, would move up the calendar to reflect the influence that those constituencies have within the Democratic Party. That kind of push for more representation has been at the heart of Joe Biden's agenda since he took office. Keep in mind, this is the president who has nominated the most diverse slate of federal judges that this country has ever seen. He's the president who's appointed the first ever African-American woman to the Supreme Court. Just this week, the Democratic Party chose an African-American congressman to lead the party in the House for the first time in U.S. history. These sorts of changes and their impact on how decisions get made and by whom those decisions get made is huge. Hey, how about that rail strike? Well, here's an update. Most labor disputes never end up being debated in Congress. But thanks to the Railway Labor Act of 1926, Congress was able to intervene in the current dispute between rail workers, unions, and management. The law was set up to regulate labor negotiations and avoid the sort of shutdown we just narrowly escaped. Because of the law, the House was able to vote Wednesday to impose unpopular contracts on four rail unions whose members have already rejected the terms, followed by a Senate vote on Thursday that did the same. 
The measure now goes to the president to sign, and when he does, the chance of a December 9th rail strike will be over. But this is yet another reminder of all the things happening in the supply chain that we all just take for granted. We take it all for granted because a banana doesn't just show up in a grocery store. Somebody grows a tree in Costa Rica, and then it's picked and it's loaded onto a truck, and then a ship, right? And then another truck, and then a train, and then another truck. And that's when you buy it at the store. You put it on your counter, and you let it slowly rot before throwing it in the garbage. And that garbage is picked up by another truck, and then it's shipped back to Costa Rica. It's actually beautiful when you think about it. It's a circle of life. So here's some bits and pieces. Now that he owes Sandy Hook families $1.5 billion, motherfucking asshole Alex Jones just filed for bankruptcy on Friday. Also on Friday, the Biden administration reported that they've added 10.5 million jobs in just two years. I mean, that's more than any other administration in American history. And in closing arguments for the Trump Organization's tax fraud trial in Manhattan, lawyers for the Trump Organization infuriated the judge by making a fucking bullshit last-minute request. Yeah, guess what? For a mistrial. And the prosecution argued that though he is not on trial, no one in the Trump Organization benefited more from this particular tax fraud scheme than Donald J. Trump. But let's face it, folks, the buck never stops with him. By the way, I don't like non-Jews referring to Jewish people as Jews. I do not like non-Jewish people referring to Jewish people as Jews. You say Jewish, Jewish people, Jewish person. I find it condescending. The Jew, the Jews, Jewish, Jewish. You can get the extra syllable out, okay? It don't take that much energy to say Jewish. And now for the main event. We welcome back to the show our good friend Ellie Honig, acclaimed author of the national bestseller Hatchet Man, how Bill Barr broke the prosecutor's code and corrupted the Justice Department. Honig is also a CNN senior legal analyst and a former federal and state prosecutor. You may also know him from his popular podcast, Up Against the Mob and or Cafe Brief. As a New Jersey federal prosecutor, Honig directed major criminal cases against street gangs, arms dealers, and even a few corrupt politicians. He was also an assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, despite which, of course, was still friends, where he successfully prosecuted more than 100 members of La Cosa Nostra, including bosses and other high-ranking members of the Gambino and Genovese organized crime families. Honig leverages all of his prosecutorial experience to keep the public informed and as fodder for his excellent new book, Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. So be sure to pick up a copy when it comes out in January of 2023. And more importantly, let's go now to that conversation. So welcome, Ellie. Good to have you back on Mea Culpa. So a new book. Congratulations. First of all, I just want to say that I really enjoyed Hatchet Man, uh, you know, about Bill Barr and now the new one uh, called Untouchable, how powerful people get away with it. First of all, first thing I want to say to you, excellent topic. 
And I hear, <laughs> and I hear that's what people ask you to explain most when you're, um, you know, when you're on television and so on. Um, I also understand that I'm in the book, and Trump's in the book, Steve Bannon's in the book, Roger Stone, even um, Bill Cosby is in the book. So do me a favor, explain yeah. to my listeners how do they get away with it. So first of all, you're right, Michael. The way this book came about is my editors at HarperCollins said, well, what's the question you get asked the most? And I said, well, by a mile, it's how the hell does he get away with it? Now, the he can vary a bit, but it's it was often Donald Trump. Um, and I thought, yeah, uh, that is by far the number one question. And there is no number two I can even think of. And HarperCollins said, perfect, let's write about that. And so what I do in the book is a couple of things. I weave in sort of reporting that's out there in the public and analyze the way that various powerful people, including Donald Trump, have gotten away with it over the years. And I'll get into some of those ways in a bit. Um, I, I weave in my own experience as a prosecutor at the Southern District of New York. As you know, Michael, I was a I was an organized crime prosecutor. And the more I went through it, the more I found that, wow, a lot of the tactics that powerful politicians and CEOs use are really mob tactics. I mean, people say it all the time. Oh, that's a mob. That, that's what a mob. That's how a mob boss talks. I mean, all due respect, I know how mob bosses talk because I prosecuted them. And a lot of the more subtle tactics are sort of mob tactics as well. And then finally, Michael, you are in the book because I tell the full story behind the scenes for the first time of the pro what became the prosecution of only Michael Cohen, the hush money payments scandal involving Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. And I think a lot of people are wondering how the hell did this whole thing result with only one person ever being charged? And that's you, Michael Cohen, who I say was essentially the bag man, more or less, certainly not the driving force behind it, certainly not the beneficiary behind it, as you will well know. But how do you end up in a situation where this guy who's a who's a borderline player in the whole scheme gets charged and sent to prison? in part for this crime, yet nobody else faces a crime. And I dug in and I got people who talked to me from all different perspectives within the Justice Department as well, who explain, first of all, how Trump became individual one and not defendant one. Um, and then also what happened after he left office, right? Because everyone understood he couldn't be charged while he was left office. As I talk about in the book, DOJ sort of forced some of the prosecutors to pull some of their punches in a way that I think people will find really interesting and really uh, bothersome. Um, but even after he got out of office, why didn't the SDNY charge him? And I have the whole backstory on that as well. So I think I can answer some of the mysteries that go into the way that your whole case played out. Which is interesting because those are things that I could not get answered um, yeah. in my book, Revenge. And so what I did is I went around it. Um, and what I ended up doing is using documents, using testimony from individuals, as well as certain articles that were written that were trying to explain the mistakes that the authors had made into it. Now, of course, I know that you were former prosecutor at SDNY, yeah. and despite that, I still like you, right? Because I truly <laughs> believe you. that most of the SDNY prosecutors, at least the ones that I've met, and I haven't met a lot, right? But the ones that I unfortunately met at the SDNY, I'm very quick to turn around and to call them exactly what I think they are. A bunch of motherfucking lying scumbag cocksuckers who all used me in order to advance themselves. That's what they are. Tom McKay's still there. Nick Roos. Uh, this um, well, Tatiana Martins. Uh, the whole group of them. Um, uh, what the heck is the other 
asshole's name, uh, the one who was in major crime frauds and so on, um, who ended up threatening my accountant that if he went ahead and filed amended returns, that they were going to shred them and I would do more time. I mean, this is not normal behavior. But so, you know, so Michael, you let talked me... about, wait, but you talk yeah. about, it's in, in the book, you talk about how I was the bag man for Stormy Daniels, Hush Money Payment, and Karen McDougal. And one of the things that, again, I dispel in my book, Revenge, I never paid Karen McDougal. In fact, all I ever did right. is look at the agreement that was done by David Pecker, who the same scumbags that got a free pass. gave, not only got a free pass, full immunity, right? Yeah. And they all lied. That's the worst part. Yeah. Alan Weisselberg lied. And I want, my, I want my listeners to actually look this up. Google Alan Weisselberg lied to Southern District of New York. And read the article. So, I don't want you to take my word for it. How do I end up being the bag man, right, so to speak, for Karen McDougal when I never paid it? And I tried to explain that to the SDNY, but they had no so interest in 48 hours. But my, my, the last part to this. Yeah. When you say bag man, it kind of like implies I was running around with cash, like what they tried right. to say in the Steele dossier. I sent $130,000 from my bank account you to signed it. A, an IOLTA account yeah. with Keith Davidson, an attorney in Beverly Hills, California. That's not a transaction that I was hiding. I was doing an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. Mm -hmm. Take it away, Ellie. Yeah. So a couple of things. First of all, this is the traditional time of the podcast when I have to note my disagreement with your characterization of the SDNY. I don't know all those folks you listed, but I do know some of them and and I I do not view them the same way you do. Fair yes, enough. you do. You're just being kind. I, I think. No, no, no. I, I listen, I, I'm critical of other prosecutors at times. Um, I don't know enough of these. I don't know any of them. I don't think I ever worked with any of them directly. But I will tell you this. I think our books in a weird way are are sort of complementary in that you give your perspective, the, the defendant's perspective. I give the other side and tell the other part of the story here. And, and it's interesting because I'll give you one little teaser from the reporting that I have. You talk about Alan Weisselberg. Um, I got confirmation, which is in the book, that the SDNY prosecutors did not believe his uh, his grand jury testimony. They felt that he was fudging the details in Donald Trump's favor. And I asked people who told me this, why didn't you charge him with perjury then? And the answer was, well, we didn't feel like his lies were concrete and provable enough to bring a perjury charge. And so what happens? Alan Weisselberg ends up slithering away where he gets a free pass in, in exchange for his testimony. The SDNY prosecutors themselves don't believe his testimony, are not willing to bank on it, are not willing to charge anyone on it. Yet Weisselberg doesn't get charged with perjury or anything else. And I think that's, and by the way, because Weisselberg was willing to lie for Donald Trump, fudge the truth, whatever you want to call it, that made it more difficult to charge Donald Trump, There's, which it's a perfect example of one of the ways that powerful people get away with it because people are under pressure to lie or fudge the truth for them. People understand what their marching orders are. I quote you, Michael, about when you were asked about um, your false testimony to Congress about the Russia construction. And you said, look, Trump doesn't tell us to lie. We just it's known within the ethos that we're expected to lie. 
Um, so I think the book is really revealing in that sense. It gives almost the prosecutor's perspective. And I'll tell you, the book is critical of prosecutors in general. And in some respects, the prosecutors on your case that I think is an interesting compliment and largely consistent with, not in every detail, but with, with the experience you had as the person on the other end of all that. So as I was saying before, if you go and you Google Alan Weisselberg lied to SDNY, one of the first articles that pops up, August 11th, 2021, written by Kara Skinnell, someone who you know from Great CNN reporter. quite well. Yes. Great reporter. All right. Mm -hmm. And here's how she starts it off. New York federal prosecutors came to suspect the Trump organization's chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg, lied in testimony during their investigation of former Trump personal attorney Michael Cohen three years ago. And yep. that's according to four people familiar with prosecutors thinking. But guess what they do? They don't Nothing. go ahead and charge him, as you say. They give him limited immunity. Yep. They give him immunity, the same bullshit immunity that these same scumbags ended up giving to, um, you know, to David Pecker uh, and to, you know, and to others that ended up testifying, including people like my former accountant, um, you know, yep. who fucked up. You know, I had a CPA, this guy, Jeffrey Getzel. I write about him in the book Revenge. Jeffrey Getzel. I gave him every single bank document, every single document that I had, I put into a three ring um, notebook. I've been doing it the same way since the 1990s. And I would send them to him. He would produce yep. for me an 1800 page tax return. And then he would tell me how much was owed. I'd give him access to my bank account. He would wire the funds, end of story. And I paid him, I paid him for the work. Never in my whole life. Have I ever been audited? I've never filed a late tax return. All his job was, was supposed to um, reconcile my bank accounts and provide me with a proper amount. Now, do I dispute the fact that he made a mistake? I do not. So right. is that a tax evasion? The answer is no, it's a tax omission. Just like many other people, I unfortunately because of my relationship to Donald Trump and the SDNY's need to fuck me up, what did they end up doing? Not a chance. Never received a letter from IRS. Next thing I know, I either plead guilty to these five tax evasion right. violations or what happens? They're finally an 80-page indictment and it's going to include my wife. And that's not something I, as her husband, who loves her with all my heart and my soul, my life, not going to let it happen. Yeah. I had 48 hours from a Friday to a Monday. Is this normal? Is this normal no. process? No. And, and, and Michael, I say in the book, look, I say it is indefensible that the only person punished for all of this, people higher than you, Donald Trump, people lower than you, people parallel to you, you're the only one who has ever faced any consequence for it. Everyone else skated somehow. And that's why I'm, I, th I thought it was such an interesting thing to break down because I'm thinking as a, as a former prosecutor, how could that be? And it sort of goes against a lot of the things I was taught as a prosecutor. Now, when it comes to Weisselberg, by the way, Kara Scannell's reporting is spot on, of course. Spot on. That, that the SDNY believed that he lied and he wasn't charged. What I did, though, is I asked some of the people involved, why not? And their responses are in the book. And I analyze their responses. I'll tell you some uh, something else that I think is interesting about 
the way this sort of all went down is um, I, you know, I get the story of basically how did Donald Trump become, quote unquote, individual one. And I will tell you, there was a lot of back and forth between Maine Justice and the SDNY as to what do we call this guy? Another thing, I don't know if you knew this, Donald Trump had his own lawyer who was going in and lobbying the SDNY about what should be done with your case, Michael Cohen, um, because Donald Trump had a had a lawyer, a very good lawyer here, very well respected, in fact, an SDNY alum, who wanted to make sure that in the prosecution of Michael Cohen, Donald Trump didn't take any collateral damage, um, meaning things weren't said that might harm him. And that lawyer was successful in some respects. She got most of what she asked for, but not all. But did you know that? I wonder, actually, Michael, did you know that Trump had his own lawyer lobbying the SDNY about how to handle your case? No, I only learned about it when I read about something similar um, mm -hmm. in Jeffrey Berman's book, which, yeah. again, and I'm contemplating on filing a bar complaint. He, as against, the yeah. head of, against, against him, to- He was recused. How does he know this? To strip himself of his license. And the fact that he did have that information as a lawyer and a guy who is the head of the fucking Southern District of New York. The head of this criminal division of the Southern District of New York wearing the big boy pants. Yeah. He doesn't he doesn't provide this information. He doesn't let anybody know. Now I got a better idea. I'm gonna hold on to that information and five years thereafter, I'm gonna write a book about it. I completely share this question for Jeffrey Berman, by the way. Jeffrey Berman, just so people out there understand, Jeffrey Berman recused himself off of your case, Michael, off of the whole hush money payments case because he's Said, I'm doing the right thing ethically because I might have a conflict of interest because I was nominated by Donald Trump. Not technically, they did it this sort of backdoor route, but I was Donald Trump's choice. I had donated, Jeffrey Berman had donated to Donald Trump. And so it could be a conflict of interest if I'm involved in a case that could impact Donald Trump. And the general response to that was, yes, that was the right thing to do. That is the ethically correct thing to do as a lawyer. Yet here comes Jeffrey Berman in the middle of 2022. And he's he's now got the story. He's got the info. What happened to recusal? What happened to keeping yourself out of it? What happened to doing the right thing? I don't know the answer to that, but um, I think that has to be taken note of. Yeah, and I think that the recusal also, by the way, you may not know this, had to do with the fact that his brother, Michael, was actually partners with David Pecker in a magazine called hmm. George after John F. Kennedy Jr. passed. They I remember the magazine, but I didn't. That's know right. That. Yeah, that he sure yeah. he sure was. You can Google that too. So huh. let me then further and ask you this: yeah. Look, he's. I'm I'm contemplating right now of filing it. I've drafted the whole thing already. Just a matter of sending it in. I personally think it's a violation. It's either unethical what he did, or it's illegal. It's one of the two. There's no other. There's no other answer. And I'm curious to see how the New York State Bar Association, those groups of fucking losers that were so fast to jump on my back. Oh, you know, you pled guilty. You pled guilty. We have to take your license. I was like, so take it, take it. I mean, I have been a member in good standing since '91, right? And at the end of the day, no bar complaints, nothing, right? And you don't even want to hear out what was really going on here. And so, no, no, we have not, it's you pled, therefore. And I was like, okay, no problem. So let me then ask you this Is the whole system just rigged for the rich? Because I think we all fear that that's the case, but we just don't want to believe it, 
right? And yeah. I have experiences, and you know, when we talk about this, not just on the show, and we talk about when we see each other in the green room, that really taint and skew my point of view. You know, but as yeah. you researched your book and from your own experience, what did you think? Is the system as broken as we think it is? I think the short answer is yes. And I think it, there, there are sort of three factors that converge here. One is there are all sorts of benefits available to the to the rich, to the powerful within our system, some of which I think are not immediately obvious. We know about some of the obvious ones, but there's a lot of things that are more subtle that I only understand now because I was able to be a prosecutor for 14 years. So number one, the system does afford many advantages and benefits to the rich, the powerful, the well-connected. Number two, some people who are rich, powerful, well-connected learn to really exploit those advantages. Donald Trump was a maestro, is a maestro at that. Whether intentionally or just because he has certain in street-level instincts, he was really good at this. And he, whether intentionally or not, adopted a lot of the very same tactics that I would see in my mafia cases. And then number three, part of it, I'm critical, as I said, of prosecutors. I think prosecutors are more tentative when it comes to rich, powerful um, intimidating type defendants, treat them differently, don't know how to counteract their uh, some of their tactics. And I'll give you one example that I, that I point out in the book, Michael. You know, prosecutors love to say, oh, we treat everyone equal. Oh, everyone's equal under the law. You know, Lady Justice is blindfolded and all this and that and no fear or favor. But you know what? That's bull. And you know how you know it is? Exhibit A is the justice manual. This is the big fat book that governs all DOJ prosecutors prosecutions because the justice manual says that if your defendant or subject is a person who is well known, who is a political person who's likely to generate national media attention, then you'll have to bring your case up to higher and higher levels of approval and review. And so just naturally, if it's a case against Joe Schmo, I think I say about you, Michael, if this was just a case against some New York City lawyer who wasn't prominent, it would have been been signed off on by probably the line prosecutor, maybe a unit chief. But because it was you, Michael Cohen, big, bold faced name, it went not only to the line prosecutor, not only to the unit chief, not only to the criminal division chief, not only to the acting U.S. attorney, but all the way to the bosses at Maine Justice. And so when you have six or seven different levels scrutinizing and having to improve just mathematically, you're going to have less charges coming out of that than if it's up to just one or two people. So, yeah, I think that's a very a very real thing. And well, I'm sorry. What, what do you mean? What do you mean by less charges? No, not less they charges. Made up, they, sorry. I mean, if you have if you have a situation where one or two people need to review charges before they become an indictment, you're going to have way more indictments than if you have to have six or seven layers of review, because six or seven layers of review means six or seven different people who can go. No, no good on that. And I give some examples in the book of cases that I had as a prosecutor that were handled differently because the person was well-known. I'll give you one example. I talk in the book about a case I had where a major league baseball player, I don't say his name in the book. I won't say his name now. Maybe I'll tell you afterwards, Michael, but a well-known guy, not a household name, but he made a couple all-star teams, um, was caught up in a gambling ring with the Gambino organized crime family. And we had him pretty much dead to rights. Now it's gambling. Who cares? It's technically illegal. It's technically a federal crime. We would charge it against mobsters just because they're mobsters and you want to take out mobsters. And we had to figure out what to do. Now, if this was just ordinary Joe Schmo, if it wasn't a well-known Major League Baseball player, I would have made that decision by myself. I wouldn't have even mentioned it to, to my unit chief. 
I would have just said no, no, no dice. Because it was a well-known person, we had to go all the way up the chain and figure out what to do. And I give various examples of that where prominent people, famous people, powerful people get way closer scrutiny before they get charged than just your run-of-the-mill person. But I wasn't even charged. I wasn't indicted. I ended well, up but you, pleading you took guilty. an information a people, which is a charge. Yeah. Well, that well, it is a charge. But I ended up pleading to a one-page information. Right? So my right. folks, my listeners here understand. This is just where they lay it out and say, as I said before, you have forty-eight hours to plead guilty, and we're going to write the allocution for you. And yeah. you're going to read every word of that allocution the way we're writing it. And you're going to practice the responses <laughs> based upon what we know the judge is going to ask you. And any deviation, right? And, you know, um, we're indicting both you and your wife. And we're going to perp walk her right now out of your apartment. Can and I ask you, I have a question for you, actually. I have a little bit of a reporting, que a journalistic question for you that, that I think is interesting. When you gave your allocution, meaning when you stood up in court in front of Judge Pauly and said, I hereby declare that I am guilty, did you say that the SDNY wrote that out for you or did you ad lib that? Because you said the stuff, that's when you said the stuff about Trump was involved. Yeah, so I never said that the SDNY was involved in writing the allocution. In I thought you fact, just said they, they wrote it out me, for you on a piece of paper. No, I'm telling you that. I'm telling my listeners that. I write about it in revenge. Yeah. But, but the, one of the first things that they told me and I'm talking about Tom McKay now, which again is why I call him a fucking dirtbag, turned around and said, the judge is going to ask you if you wrote this allocution or it was provided to you by us. You right. say that you and your lawyer wrote it. Really? All right? Okay. Yeah, really. All um, right. That, he's, that's he's, a, he's a dirtbag. Yeah, I'm sure. Know. Let me yeah. ask you a question. Yeah, I'm glad you don't. So <laughs> let me ask you this question. Post my bullshit and everything, I understand that there was a dozen sealed indictments that were sitting there at the SDNY regarding the Stormy Daniels matter. I have and not heard you that. Look, you, you could Google it. And for some unknown reason, the SDNY then ended up not using any of those indictments, those sealed indictments. And in fact, what they claimed is that there wasn't enough information for them to open up a case and to charge the people who were in those sealed indictments. I'll never forget this. This is a true story. When, those, when the announcement of the sealed indictments came out, Charlie Kushner was running around telling people, and we have mutual friends um, that, you know, that know him and, um, yeah. and the, the wife, uh, Searle. Charlie was running around telling everyone, I can't believe it, my son's going to be indicted. My son's going to be indicted. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what those indictments were all about, who was named. I suspect it would have been Donald. I suspect it would have been Don Jr., Ivanka, Eric, Jared, etc. They, dro they, they dropped those and they destroyed those sealed indictments. You're Why? talking about the, the Southern District of New York? Yes. So I, I have uncovered no evidence that I don't see it on Google either. Um, nothing in the reporting I did indicated that. What what I did uncover is that there was a much longer, more robust version of what was the Michael Cohen indictment, but as you said, became an information. So people understand there's, we all know what an indictment is. That's a formal charging document. If a person agrees 
to take a plea right away like you did, that becomes what we call an information. But when they were constructing the Michael Cohen indictment, that had chapter and verse on Donald Trump's conduct in it. And the SDNY was bigfooted by DOJ. Bill, well, it wasn't Bill Barr at the time. I take it back by by the Donald Trump uh, administration. This is under Sessions, although Sessions was recused. So there were others, but by the DOJ bosses who said, no, you need to take all that information about Donald Trump out of the Michael Cohen documents. SDNY, actually, I detail the fight, but the SDNY actually pushed back on that. But ultimately, uh, as much as the SDNY prides itself on being independent, we're, we're not anarchists. You ha- we have to listen to DOJ. But there was a big fight, Michael, over your indictment. They had a long, de- detailed indictment, and I describe it in the book, that would have laid out – if you look at your, what ended up being your indictment, your information, it only mentions Trump seven times, to- individual one, seven times. And most of it is just like individual one was the CEO of the company, like no substance on anything that he did. But that's because it got taken out of there. And and I tell the story of why. Hmm. Well, um, when I when I find that article on the sealed indictment. Yeah, send it to me. Um, over there at the SDNY, I definitely will send okay. it to you. And I've talked about it. I've yeah. talked about it quite a bit. And I think you and I actually had spoken about it um, in the in the green room uh-huh. where I said, why would they why would they not have done it? So let me ask yeah. you a question since we're talking about CNN. Sure. Should I ask you what's happening over at CNN or should we just leave that topic alone? No, no, I'm not. Listen, I, I don't. All I do is I go where they point. I do my legal analysis and that's it. Um, and I, you know, so so let, <laughs> that's all I have to say. You know, because it's just weird. Uh, I mean, they're taking. And some cases they're taking positions that you would think are almost. um you know, right of center here. And I just, well, let me, I just don't, let me just it. tell you in my experience here. And this, this applies to ever since I started here in 2018, when, when Jeff Zucker was in charge or now with Chris Licht in charge, no human being has ever told me what to say or how to say it. Nobody has ever, I agree ever with that. No said, one. You, you come on there. Nobody, nobody has ever said or suggested ever. Hey, you may want to, you may want to push it this way. Never, never. The only ethic instruction understanding I've ever had is get it right call it straight, give us your explanation. That's it. So that has never changed here and 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 I, I believe never will. Hmm. Okay, and we're going to leave that one alone. So let me then move on and ask you this. What can you tell me about the Oath Keepers trial, <laughs> right? First time, first time in 30 that we've convicted, yeah. right? Since the 30s, that we've convicted someone on sedition charges. Well, so yeah. what's your take What's your take on how long Rhodes and Megs are likely to get, right? And yeah. also, because I think it carries, what, like a 30-year sentence or some, something like that? And also, you think that this trial can act as a roadmap or a model for how the DOJ might ultimately prosecute Trump? So it, it, a lot of interesting questions there. So first of all, seditious conspiracy law is rarely used. It was used... Uh, here's the recent history before these January 6th prosecutions. It was charged in 2010 or so in Michigan against this group called the Hutari. They were this sort of separatist group, but that prosecution collapsed. The charges were thrown out. Nobody was convicted. Before that, you have to go back to, to 30 years ago to the mid-90s when my former office, before I was there, the SDNY, charged uh, members of a foreign terrorist group who were planning this day of terror where the plan was they were going to bomb 26 Fed, which is the FBI headquarters. They were going to bomb the bridges, the tunnels, all this. They charged and tried and convicted some of these foreign terrorists on seditious conspiracy charges. 
And before that, it's used every generation or so, maybe more than that. But it goes the law goes back to the post-Civil War era when the idea was let's keep Confederate sympathizers away from taking office. Um, these charges were, you know, people say they were aggressive charges, and I guess that's right. But I think there's a fair criticism of DOJ that they didn't charge enough people with seditious conspiracy because what seditious conspiracy means is to agree to use force. Force is an important element here in order to either overthrow the government. That's the more dramatic version or to interfere with a lawful function of the government here. The counting of the votes by Congress, the electoral votes. Um, judges have criticized DOJ, federal judges, more than one for being too light in their charging decisions. They've said, essentially, why are we seeing all these misdemeanors, trespass and, and disorderly conduct? Yet the total number of misdemeanor charges is many multiples, the, char the, the number of charges of a seditious conspiracy. Nonetheless, I will give credit to Merrick Garland and DOJ. They did charge seditious conspiracy against this group and another group of leaders of the Oath Keepers and another group of leaders of the Proud Boys. Um, the jury's verdict was actually kind of interesting here because they convicted the they convicted all five people uh, here of some crime or other. Uh, in fact, all five of them were convicted of uh, obstruct uh, conspiring to obstruct Congress, but only two of the five were convicted of the seditious conspiracy, the using force part of it, and that was the top two uh, defendants, Rhodes and Megs. Um, you ask what type of sentence they're going to get, you know. People love to go right to the max. Oh, 20 year max, 20 year max. It is very rare in the federal system for people to get the max. I mean, in a murder case, you're going to get the max. But usually the federal sentence or, or state sentence is a, is a fraction of the max. This will be really interesting, though, because we haven't had a seditious conspiracy in a long, long time. Um, if I had to ballpark it, I think Stuart Rhodes is going to get double digits. I think he's going to be in the 10, 12, maybe eight or nine, you know, eight to 12 year range because I think his conduct was very serious. I think the judge will recognize that. And I think the jury's verdict recognizes that. And I think you'll the sentences will sort of tear down from whatever Rhodes gets. But but I don't think we're looking at we shouldn't be looking at slaps on the wrist here. We shouldn't be looking at 18 months or three years or five years. Yeah, I mean, look, we've all seen uh, <laughs> the numbers that are coming out these days, you know, some. Um, yeah. You know, 11 years for this, you know, 12 years for, you know, for that. I mean, look at, for example, um, the case of reality winner, five years for one document. I mean, you know, they're not shy in handing it three years for another guy getting his pecker pulled by a porn star. Right. I mean, talk about a guy getting screwed and not even really getting <laughs> screwed. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's really it's, for you, it, the whole thing is just. Yeah, well, thank you. Boom, boom. And it's look. It is. It is what it is. What it is. I I agree with you. I think it's double digits. I don't yeah. think it's going to be a life, so on. But again, it goes right back to your book. Yeah. Right. Now, Rhodes is not a rich man by any means. In fact, um, when I did my Maya Culpa live in L.A., we had Jason Van Tattenhove, who was yeah. the spokesperson for the Oath Keepers, mm -hmm. and. Um, Rhodes actually slept in his basement. So we're not talking about a rich guy. However, what happens is because he's lumped in to the rich guy who, as we all know and believe, sent them all there to do what they did, which is to try to overthrow <laughs> the government attacking the Capitol and so on. They have no choice but to give him a significant length of time. Yeah. Otherwise, 
Their concern is that they're being too lenient. And it goes right back to your opening on your book, which is Lady Justice wears a blindfold for a reason. Now, if it's seditious conspiracy and he's obviously now been found guilty and the judge has his discretion, I think we really do have to start to put into perspective some of these disproportionate sentencing, like three years and three years supervised release for, as I said, you know, another guy having a tryst with a porn star and a Playboy playmate. Um, and, and, you know, look, I think there's an interesting line to be drawn here. When you look at this guy, Stuart Rhodes, I mean, he is probably the single most powerful, well-connected, whatever you want to call it, person who has been charged by DOJ in connection with January 6th as of this moment, December 2nd, 2022. And that is an outrage. 900 people have been charged. And the single most powerful guy is this guy, Stuart Rhodes. I mean, he's the founder or the president of Oath Keepers. He's this he, he yes, he's a dangerous guy. Yes, he committed very serious crimes. Yes, he needs to go away for for a long time, I believe. But he's not a powerhouse. He has no proximity to official power. And nobody mm-hmm. in anywhere near Donald Trump's orbit, forget about Donald Trump, no Eastman, no Jeffrey Clark, no Flynn, no Stone, no uh, Steve Bannon on down the line have been charged for January 6th. Now, that could change. And I think it's you know, it, I think the signs are there that it's becoming increasingly likely that we do see charges against more powerful people, but it's going to take so long. We're going to be more than two years out by the time that happens. And every day that passes, it gets harder and harder to convict these guys. The conduct feels more distant. You get closer and closer to the 2024 election where Donald Trump's a candidate now. So I do think I do think if you look at the January 6th prosecutions in in some odd ways michael there's there's parallels to your prosecution they go let's really drop the hammer hard on this guy here whether it's michael Cup, not that you're Stuart rhodes i'm not comparing you to him but but you know i, I appreciate while, that. while the real guy behind, behind because i'm not gonna i'm not gonna come i'm not gonna compare you to jeffrey Dahmer either. You. right listen <laughs> i will say this michael Stuart rhodes went to went to a higher ranked law school than either you or me <laughs> yeah that's true you know, he, I just so the viewers know he went to Yale Law School. Um, and so a friend of mine is a classmate of his. I said, oh, pride of Yale Law, huh? Um, but look, there, you know, in some ways, you <laughs> or, a, you know, a guy who is who is on foot level, you know, on the street level um, is an easier target than the guy who's giving the orders or letting the orders be known or putting word out there that are understood as orders from a remove from a distance. Mm hmm. Yes, it's true. And it's unfair. And I'm glad you wrote your book. Now, let's get on to Merrick Garland for a quick. By the way, before I get on to Merrick Garland, (laughs) then why not Alan Weisselberg? I mean, do you think that it doesn't piss me off to some extent that Alan Weisselberg, who's still fucking lying, he's still lying to the in the trial now, this time to the D.A. in the trial, all of a sudden. I'm so sorry. I did it. I did it. It's all me. And it was all Jeff McConney. Let me tell you something. This little fucking Ewok had zero, zero ability to do anything. Could you imagine the CFO? First of all, he's not an accountant. He's not a CPA. He's a bookkeeper who ultimately rose to the position of CFO. Despite 50 years of being there, the guy was not allowed to write a check. If that check, I think, exceeded $500. Jeff McConney isn't even an executive at the Trump organization. And I've kind of tried to describe 
how the relationship between Trump, Weisselberg, and McConnie actually exists. Yeah. Well, and the best way I could describe it, which I did on television, was think about like a single charter bank. Okay. Donald Trump is the president of the bank. He's the CEO. Alan Weisselberg is the general manager, and McConnie is the, is the teller. That's all McConnie did. Whatever Weisselberg told him to do. Nobody else had any interaction with McConnie. Unless you were just talking bullshit with him for, you know, while you're watching television in the, uh, you know, in the dining area. Nobody gave McConaughey anything to do other than Weisselberg. Yeah. All right. Weisselberg didn't do a goddamn thing unless Trump directed him to. And Weisselberg, to protect his ass on every single request on anything, had Donald put his initial on it or signed. Well, you know, Weisselberg's... How does he end up lying? Weisselberg's such an interesting case study because like I told you, and I get behind this in the book, Weisselberg goes into the grand jury in the Southern District of New York, lies. They believe he lies or fudges the truth, whatever whatever you want to call it, and walks out of there. They don't do anything to him. And now look what's happening in the DA's case. I've been very critical of the DA's case. This is not how you do cooperation. You don't sign up a guy like Weisselberg and allow him to halfway cooperate, tell you some of the story, tell you this dubious story that as you've laid it out, but also allow him this sort of half-assed approach where, well, we're going to have you testify against the organization. I mean, who cares? No one goes to prison for that. It'll be a fine or whatever. It's more than a who cares. But but when it comes to, to the what really matters, testifying against individuals, human beings who may be sent to prison if they're convicted, you don't have to. We'll, we'll give you a pass on that. I mean, you know, look, Part of my book is about prosecutorial failure. I do not take the view that prosecutors are perfect mm -hmm. or or always do the right thing. And I think in the book, I expose some of the ways that some of the rhetoric you hear from prosecutors is hypocritical. And sometimes prosecutors just look for the easy way out. I think that absolutely happened in your case. And I think it's it's probably happening with, with the Weisselberg cases as well. Uh, and it's wrong and it shouldn't yeah. be happening. You know, and by the way, the the woman I was talking about uh, is Andrea Griswold over there uh, at the U.S. Attorney's Office, the one who basically threatened my, you know, my accountant, my new accountants, that if they do anything, um, you know, that uh, would limit what they can continue to go after me on, uh, that she was going to scrutinize. And I put that letter, that email um, in, in my book as well. But yeah, it was really um, something incredible. You know, they were, as I was saying to you, you know, and it really bothers me because even the statement that the SDNY put out based upon the conviction afterwards, yeah. you know, they always yeah, yeah. have to, you know, we have to throw ourselves a champagne so party. On, right? I know I've done it. <laughs> yeah, it, ex ex exactly. You know, um, I, I liked it where the IRS special agent in charge and all of these guys should really be held accountable. Maybe we do a book holding people accountable. <laughs> well, but this guy, Jason, Jason Robinet, yeah. this is what he stated. And it's, it's infuriating because not only do I know that it's not true, he knew it wasn't true. And so did Judge Pauly, who didn't give a shit either. But Robinet writes, and I'm going to quote, Today's guilty plea exemplifies IRS special agents' rigorous pursuit of tax evasion and sends the clear message that the tax laws apply to everybody. Yeah, that, that's an embarrassing. Mr. That's Cohen's agreed to hide his income. That's an what? embarrassing statement by the IRS. What the fuck are you IRS? talking about, James? I mean, yeah. Right? First of all, the IRS... I've never received a letter. Do you know that if you ask the IRS right now, which is why Senator Dick Durbin 
asked for an investigation into the handling by the IRS of my case, along with Comey and along with and McCabe. McCabe. He wants to see what's going on here. Do you know that there was never an investigator even assigned to my case? Yeah, rigorous, Robinette, you fucking jerk you, you, off. Could you, you imagine? Took, uh, what what prosecutors sometimes sort of recognize as a, as a plea of convenience, meaning we can get this guy to plead, we don't really have to dig in. He's not going to, you know, we can we can strong arm him so he doesn't take us to trial and then we can declare victory. And that's that's what that sounds like to me. But listen, I, I really do think and I say this in the book, I, I think the way your case was handled was an injustice. And, you know, I will disagree with you, Michael. And, you know, I don't just say whatever you want to hear. But um, I think there's there's a, there are real lessons to be drawn. Of it. And, you know, you talk about accountability, who will be held accountable. And, and I think this goes for my first book as well about Bill Barr. Sadly, a lot of times the only accountability is these books. And you may say, well, that's a meager punishment. And it is. But if people aren't doing this research and this journalism and this writing, then someone like Bill Barr would there never would be other than my book. There is no here's the Bible of Bill Barr. There's his own bullshit book. But, you know, if you want the real story. Well, my book, my book, my book, I, my book, I go okay. pretty heavy into so, Bill Barr. There you go. You know, as right. well. So, like I said, but which is but what these, I these said books to you matter. before. And you, they they and do you matter. Said, and it is important because. And they complement. Yeah. And they complement And you can say other. things that, that you can't say when you're a prosecutor, or we can say things, we can point out things that have sort of just fallen through the cracks or fallen off the radar. Okay. So let, let me ask you a question, because you and I, I believe, sure. differ on this one. And we're going to go back to mm -hmm. Merrick Garland. How we feel about him right now. Because he put Jack Smith on the Trump investigation. Yeah. And that seemed like a good move, especially since Garland seems more like, you know, an arbiter than a prosecutor, especially not a hardcore prosecutor. Would you agree with that? Yeah, statement? I don't think we actually disagree on this one. Um, I think it was a savvy move by Merrick Garland, whether it was legally, you know, there's an argument if he was going to do this, appoint a special counsel, he should have done it right from the start. Um, but. Here's right. what it, here's what this gives Merrick Garland. It gives Merrick Garland the thing he wants most, political insulation. It gives him a heat shield because without a special counsel, ultimately Merrick Garland's the one who has to give the thumbs up or thumbs down. Now, with the special counsel, it still ultimately does come down to Merrick Garland. But what the regulations say, and God knows Merrick Garland loves himself some regulations and some laws, as he should, but the regulations say special counsel makes the decision in the first instance, and then the AG has to give that decision, can overrule him, but has to give that decision, quote, great weight. So what's a guy like Garland going to do? Whatever Jack Smith comes back with, and I think it's likely Jack Smith comes back re recommending an indictment, at least on Mar-a-Lago, it's very easy now for Garland to say, well, okay, the special counsel hypothetically has recommended that we bring an indictment of Donald Trump for Mar-a-Lago. The regs say I have to give that great weight unless something unusual has happened. I've reviewed this. I don't believe anything unusual has happened in the investigation. I think the investigation has been on the up and up. And therefore, I defer to the special counsel. And there you, you land with an indictment, but it gives Garland something to hide behind. So we can argue about whether that's right or brave or whatever or smart. But um, I do think that the appointment of a special counsel probably when you consider all the factors, legally, it doesn't make an indictment any more or less likely. It's not as if the special counsel has magical powers. He basically has the same powers as a prosecutor has. But I think when you're looking at the political mm -hmm. dynamic here, I think it probably makes an indictment somewhat more likely. And one of the things that I've been um, saying a lot is 
I certainly hope that Jack Smith bifurcates the two cases. Oh, he has right? to. Uh, that he decides yeah. he's not going to hold them as one. Well, they're of course, two totally I mean, they're different two completely things. Yeah. separate matters. But, but that he jumps on the Mar-a-Lago case first because it's the easier of the two. The January 6th committee hearings um, are obviously much more difficult to bring an indictment against Trump on for yeah. many reasons of which well, you I, and I have spoken I agree um, with a you. lot about. But I agree also with you that it's, it's definitely more likely that we of- see charges first on Mar-a-Lago or perhaps only on Mar-a-Lago. I agree with you. I think it's a cleaner, easier case to make. And, and if I had to bet which one comes first or which is the only one, definitely Mar- from DOJ, Mar-a-Lago. I think Fulton County, the DA there, may charge election-related interference. Right. You see, and the reason I say that is because the Mar-a-Lago documents are just so crystal clear. You have, you have the evidence right then and there. There's nothing, there's really very little in dispute. But the beauty about that is that he can do it quickly, as opposed to the Mar-a-Lago where there are millions of documents, you know, thousands and thousands of hours of testimony that he'll have to read through. We know what's going to happen come January. We know that they're going to, the House is going to try to put an end to all of this. I don't know if they can, but I know that they'll try. Yeah. But let me ask you this. Um, appeals panel yeah. went ahead and made a ruling the other day on um, Trump's request for special treatment special of the Mar-a-Lago yeah. documents. Why don't, you inform, why don't you inform my listeners what happened there and what it's yeah, all so about? Yeah, so when the FBI and DOJ searched Mar-a-Lago, um, Trump a few weeks later asked for appointment of a special counsel to review the documents. You had a special counsel, Michael, in your case. Um, you had J- Judge Barbara yes. Jones to go through the documents and filter out anything that was privileged. Um, unlike your case, though, in your case, DOJ agreed to it. In this case, DOJ said, no, we don't think it's appropriate. The district court judge, the trial-level federal judge in Florida, Judge uh, Cannon, said, I am appointing a special master. DOJ, the special master has been reviewing documents for the last several months. DOJ then appealed. And DOJ said that the judge overstepped her bounds in appointing a special master, certainly without the government with DOJ agreeing to it. And the 11th Mm -hmm. Circuit Court of Appeals, a very conservative circuit, and this particular three-judge panel had two Trump appointees and one George Bush appointee, George W. Bush appointee, um, pretty decisively rejected the district court and said, no, they don't get into executive privilege. People have misunderstood this and said, oh, they rejected Trump's executive privilege claim. No, they don't even address that. They say it was improper for you as a judge to appoint a special master here because you exceeded your jurisdiction. It's a jurisdictional type of ruling. Now, Trump has the right to try to get this to the Supreme Court. I suspect he probably will try. I think there's no way the Supreme Court touches this. And so what this means is a speed bump has been removed. I mean, I think everyone needs to keep the special master in, in in perspective. The special master was never going to stop DOJ from doing anything. All that the special master said, basically said was, all the documents have to run through this filter before DOJ could do anything. And the documents were already in the process of going through the filter. Some might have gotten picked out as privileged, but if they're privileged, DOJ shouldn't be using them anyway. Now that roadblock, that detour, whatever you want to call it, is gone. And now DOJ can fully use those documents. But it's also important that people understand, DOJ did not suspend its its investigation. They did not need to suspend their investigation during the, the whole mm-hmm. two months or whatever it's been that the special master has been appointed. They've been issuing subpoenas. They've been investigating. So now this roadblock's been removed and now they can fully access these documents, barring some sort of miracle intervention by the Supreme Court. 
Hey, Ellie, let me ask you this then. Do you think that, there, as I was asking before, the Republican majority now in the House come January, you think that they could influence Smith's, um, you know, the, the Smith's counsel, special counsel case uh, or shut it down like I was no, saying? No, I don't think they're going to be able to shut it down or influence it. I think what they can do and they've signaled they intend to do is make life difficult. I mean, remember the day of the Mar-a-Lago search, Kevin McCarthy sent a tweet saying something like Merrick Garland, clear your calendar and 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 save your documents. Um, they're clearly going to hold hearings that are intended to undermine, muck up, politicize whatever DOJ is doing. They can try to drag Merrick Garland up there. But I, I am quite confident Merrick Garland will not disclose details of the investigation. He is he is very much of a rule follower, and it's a rule you don't do that. Um, but we could see some some sort of interesting congressional hearings where members of Congress, Jim Jordan or whoever, is wagging their finger at Merrick Garland saying, how dare you? You've politicized the Justice Department. Um, all of that may happen, but... None of that will stop an investigation or stop a potential indictment from happening. That remains squarely in the purview of the executive branch and the Justice Department. And I don't think they will undermine or intimidate um, as much as I, you know, as much as I am at times critical of Merrick Garland. I don't think they will intimidate Merrick Garland. And, and I don't know Jack Smith personally, but he's an experienced prosecutor. I don't think he'll be intimidated by political pressure either. Yeah, to me, it seems like Merrick Garland's intimidated well, by let me, everything. Well, let me. He's intimidated by running say, water. Yes. He's intimidated by blowing yeah, you're right. wind. I mean, I do, I do think Merrick Garland is on the timid side of, of prosecutors. I've, I call, I've called him timid before, but I don't think he's going to not do something because members of Congress are putting pressure on him. I think he's generally cautious, scared of the idea of bringing an aggressive indictment in the first place. I mean, if you look at the Oath Keepers case we were just talking about, the seditious conspiracy charges, the evidence seemed quite clear to me with respect to Rhodes, at least. The reporting is it took months and months and months of people inside DOJ to finally convince Garland to even sign off on those charges. And that was only, you know, against the most obvious target. So he definitely is on the timid side of the prosecutorial spectrum. No question about it. People, by the way. Could you imagine? Could you imagine? If yeah. It, could you imagine if Bill Barr was anything like Merrick Garland? Oh my, my case never would have even made it to, <laughs> you know, to it, not, it wouldn't even made it off of home yeah, plate. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 absolutely incredible. And by the way, now look, it looks like Mark yeah, go Meadows. Ahead. No, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. You had something to say. I was going to say, you know, people always say with Merrick Garland, oh, he took out Timothy McVeigh. That's that's just that's just wildly inaccurate. I mean, he supervised Timothy McVeigh got arrested in a traffic stop and then the feds immediately realized it was him and then put him in federal custody. Um, that case was hugely important, maybe the most important prosecution DOJ's ever done. But the evidence was overwhelming and quite clear that didn't take any prosecutorial guts to bring. Yes, why you, why, you think the McVeigh case was more important than the Michael Cohen case? <laughs> yes. Seriously? Yes, I do. <laughs> I mean, I, they, they say mine was, well, okay. Yeah. Well, well, th thanks, for, thanks for knocking out my, you know, <laughs> my, <laughs> knocking my case off of yeah, top Yeah, sorry, list. you're not So let one, me yeah. ask you this then, because it looks like, all right, it looks like Mark Meadows is heading to Georgia right. to finally, finally have that long-awaited chat with Fannie Willis and her grand jury. Now, I guess you have to pay attention to the subpoenas now, yeah. right? Who, I mean, who knew? But what is Prosecutor Willis likely to ask him? And how has Meadows stayed out of the hot seat for so long? Because if anyone, right, if anyone has the goods to put Trump right in the dead center of this, 
It's Mark Meadows. I totally agree with that. I think if you had magical tr truth serum and could give it to everybody, the one person whose testimony I would want first and foremost would be Mark Meadows because he was the chief of staff. He was there for all the key conversations. You ask, what's yep. the DA going to ask him? Tell me every single conference. Let's go through your calendar from election day until January 6th and beyond that. And every conversation, I mean, Mark Meadows is the guy on the phone. If you listen to the John, Donald Trump, Brad Raffensperger, the infamous, I just need you to find 11,780 votes phone call. Mark Meadows is on that call. He starts it off. He goes, okay, is everyone here? We have the president. We have Brad Raffensperger. We have so-and-so. Um, all of that is so crucial. This guy, everyone goes, who's the next John Dean? Who's the next Michael Cohen? I, you know, I, I think that's all a little overstated, but if Mark Meadows were ever to make a clean break, that's the guy who I would want. And I, and I do have to say this about the, the DA in, in Fulton County. Um, there are things, again, that I've been critical of her for, but boy, has she been aggressive in going after subpoenas on powerful people, on high profile people, whether it's Mark Meadows, Lindsey Graham, Rudy, and winning, rightly winning in court. Because the, a lot of these guys are getting a little bit of a wake-up call here because they spent the last year and a half dodging or ignoring uh, or defying congressional subpoenas, January 6th committee subpoenas. But those are like the scrawny, weak cousin of the grand jury subpoena. These are grand jury subpoenas like we're seeing out of DOJ, like we're seeing out of the Fulton County DA. You don't mess with those. You don't have a choice. You can't just issue some statement about how you think it's illegitimate and walk away. You will be dragged in. You will be. You will either testify, you will have to take the fifth, or you will go to jail on contempt. And so a lot of these guys, Mark Meadows and others, are now losing their court battles with, with the Fulton County DA, and they're going to have to mm -hmm. testify. Maybe they take the fifth. They have that right. Maybe they're going to, you know, one thing let's keep in mind, like people do, and I talk about this in the book too, loyal people do fudge the truth for the big boss. I mean, the fact that you're getting, you know. Well, look at, look, look at, look at white, look at white example. But perfect can I just example, jump yeah. on that? Can I jump on yeah. that for one quick second? Because I've read in the papers and I've been called up onto it that potentially our district attorney here in New York, Alvin yeah. Bragg, might be in revisiting the hush money, the campaign finance um, violation case. What's your what's your take on that? One to ten. So, uh, he, one being no, ten being guaranteed. What's your take whether he does that or the he DA doesn't? charges somebody there? Uh, low, three. I just don't see i don't know why he would have waited this long the charges that they're looking at are like this falsification of a business record um i know alvin bragg i should say he's a friend of mine he's a former colleague at the sdny you know he took criticism for not charging the trump trump donald trump in relation to um frauds at the trump organization i just i just think he's gonna decide that there's not enough there to warrant a state level prosecution but i will say as you and I have discussed, that case remains very much unresolved. I mean, you know, it, it's it's silly that you're the only person who was ever prosecuted for it. I mean, he's also coming up on the statute of limitations. Um, he may be able to get in there with some of the later documents that post-dated. I mean, the payments now were more than six years ago, but I know that some of the pay paybacks went into went into later months. But um, I think it's unlikely. Um, I You know, I don't like to make these predictions, so I would say more unlikely than likely. Let's say that. Interesting. So then let me ask you this. The calls for an investigation into Clarence and Jeannie Thomas, they don't seem to be going away. And still, we hear absolutely nothing from the Supreme Court. I mean, Jeannie's still out there insisting that the 2020 election was stolen. And then Clarence, I mean, talk about arrogant. I mean, he's never going to recuse himself from anything. So 
What do you think is going to be the fate of the Thomas? Well, I'm not sure what the investigation could be. I mean, the January 6th committee spoke with her. We don't know exactly what the deal was made there. Um, I doubt she said anything incriminating to herself or anybody else. What I do think ought to happen is Clarence, for the reasons you just said, Clarence Thomas should absolutely be recusing himself from anything to do with January 6th. And people say, well, he's not responsible for what his wife does. No, it's not a matter of you did wrong or you did bad. It's a matter of your wife is involved in this stuff. So as a matter of good practice, we were talking before about recusal. You don't want there to be any impression of a potential conflict of interest. You should recuse yourself. I talk in my first book about how I was recused off a case and it's not, it doesn't, being recused doesn't mean you've been a bad boy and you're being punished. It just means it looks, it looks not right to have you on this case. I had a case where I forget the exact, it was like my dad's former law partner's client from 15 years ago was like a witness. It was like four steps of removal. And I was told you should be off that case. Well, Clarence Thomas, his wife was involved in some of the efforts to pressure state and local uh, legislators. She was involved and she was at the rally. She says she left before they got violent. She was texting Mark Meadows about this. Um, I mean, to me, it, it's craziness that, that uh, Justice Thomas has not recused himself. However, here's the problem. The Supreme Court is, re you want to talk about above the law. I mean, the Supreme Court doesn't even have a code of ethics. All other federal judges do, but the Supreme Court has decided those ethics don't apply to us. And there's nobody in, you know, he has life tenure. Um, Justice Chief Justice Roberts doesn't have the power to force Justice Thomas to recuse, but um, there's no investigation. There's no, you know, it, it's just really, we put faith in the, in, in the good judgment of these justices. But I do think that Clarence Thomas is really um, is really testing that by refusing to recuse himself, which is the obvious thing that he should be doing. I mean, they have really, they have truly destroyed this high court, the reputation. I, I you yep. know, I mean, I think I think the reputational legitimacy of the Supreme Court is completely ruined at yep. this time. And, you know, as the Democrat, we really should be thanking folks like Judge Alito because he helped to um, destroy the Republicans' chance, as far as I'm concerned, for that massive red wave that they were expecting in the midterms. And the interesting thing, too, about this whole thing is as it works out with, um, you know, with the Dobbs case, with the overturning of Roe, <laughs> the interesting thing is these massive donors that they had. <laughs> on the side, have now walked away. I mean, the evangelicals are like, listen, we got all that we wanted out of this. And, you know, they're not now, you know, making those gigantic donations, including corporate donors. Everybody's just seems to be walking away because they're disgusted with the court. It's, such, but, yeah, it's an interesting story. I should say, by the way, I don't I don't identify with like a, any Democratic political agendas or anything like that. I don't you know that I guess you're speaking for yourself. But but I do th that. Of course, that story about the um, the the donors and the, uh, the the potential leak that may have come from Alito in The New York Times a couple of weeks ago is fascinating. I highly recommend everyone read that. I'm I mean, actually don't, for, don't forget. Yeah, that's for sure. But don't forget, when I was the vice chair, as a Democrat, yep. I was the vice chair of the RNC Finance Committee. And that <laughs> one year, we raised $145 million yeah. for, the, for Trump and the RNC. So trust me, I, when I tell you that these donors are walking. So I have one last question sure. for you, because the hour goes by really, really quick. It does. We both know New York. <laughs> we're, both, we're both New Yorkers. Mayor Eric Adams yeah. is talking now about incarcerating mentally ill people against their will. Now, mental illness and homelessness are a mess in the city right now. Yeah. And not just in New York. I mean, I just came from California. It's a mess there as well. And there are lots of feelings on both sides. But from myself as well, I yeah. understand 
what Mayor Adams is looking to do. The need for more mental health care professionals to work with the police and with others, that's crystal clear. And I don't think anybody would disagree with that. Mm -hmm. But aren't there civil liberties that are going to be violated when you lock up these folks against their will? I mean, is Adams out of line here, in your opinion, or just doing what he needs to do? So this is one of the most difficult issues facing policing. And I dealt with this a lot when I was at the New Jersey AG's office. What do you do with someone who's who's mentally ill? And it drives so much of our crime, so much of our street crime. And and yes, everyone agrees we need more mental health professionals, but also you need cops. I mean, some of the idea of like, well, let's just send mental health uh, you know experts to some of these crime scenes is crazy. There's times when you need a cop with a gun and with the power to to you know to to handle a situation because. There are real crimes against innocent victims happening. There's no doubting that. One thing that's really important to understand, though, cops, you have to train cops properly. You have to equip cops properly. You can't turn a cop into a psychiatrist or a psychologist. But what you have to train cops to do is to recognize the indicators and then to get mental health intervention if available. You cannot lock people up if they've not committed a crime. You cannot lock someone up merely because that person is mentally ill or has mental health issues, that is not a crime. That would violate every civil liberty, civil right in the book. But if people are committing crimes while they are mentally ill or because they are mentally ill, then yeah, in, in most of those cases, they still need to be but prosecuted. That's, but that's not really. But that's not really. But Ellie, that's not really the that's not really the question here. So there are homeless. There are homeless folks all over the streets. You actually almost can't go no, a I, block see without seeing yeah. a homeless person. Yesterday, I was um, coming out of Bloomingdale's, and I see this gentleman. He's a homeless man, and he's urinating on the wall. And, you know, there's a cop standing right there at the corner, sees it, does absolutely nothing. That was a little upsetting to me. But my point is, under Mayor Adams' new rule, this individual could be laying down on the street. They have the ability to involuntarily place him into i don't want to call oh, it when you say custody i thought you meant jail, in okay but yeah. into a into custody yeah. no yeah um, i mean my feeling is what happens now you go ahead you put that person into say bellevue or something right. like giuliani used to do years ago and then that person gets injured is that not now a lawsuit so, against the city of it'll New be York? a lawsuit and I'm, i don't actually know the policy in, in great detail as you can tell but there's no question that any program along those lines will be challenged legally, whether by the ACLU or by a representative of, of of a homeless person. But it's a really difficult line to draw. I agree with you. This city has changed. I mean, even walking through the city now, people are aggressive. People. I mean, look, it's New York City, but it's different now. I mean, I used to walk to work every day for eight years uh, from World Trade Center to the SDNY, a mile or so each way. And it was nothing like it is now. The, the, the problem's gotten out of control. I'm in favor of, I mean, this is a, this sounds like a politician's response, but um, there has to be a stronger hand taken with this. It can't just be turned away from like the cop who turned away from the guy outside of Bloomingdale's the other day. Um, but you can't just be like, let's just sweep everyone up and lock them up and make the problem go away. You have to be able to deal with it. But we need, you need more funding for the cops. You need more funding for mental health intervention. Um, and you need more funding for our, our mental health professionals and, and resources. So that's easy. I can spend someone else's money, but there, there's no e- easier pat solution to any of this. And couple that with what we really need to is we need to have proper shelters that these people can go to where they're not more in fear of their life in a shelter than they are living on the street. But yeah. Ellie, 
As always, it is so great to see you, my friend. I will see you, I'm sure, in a green room <laughs> soon. Um, despite your former relation to the Southern District of New York, I still like <laughs> you. Always will. Um, wish you the best on the book. Um, you know, it's fantastic. I certainly recommend everybody read it. It works very much in conjunction with my book, Revenge. They're almost like, you know, bookends. Exactly. You read one then you read the other, and then you fully understand just how bad right now our justice system currently is. So, Ellie, I thank you. Um, and obviously, you know, I'll be reaching out to you because I reach out to Ellie a lot <laughs> for legal opinions and for uh, <laughs> and for some talking points. Appreciate you very much. Thanks, my Michael. Friend. Can I just say I want my five timers robe like they give? I think this is my fourth or fifth time with you. Uh, like on Saturday Night Live, they give them the uh, so I think I need a robe now. <laughs> you got it, my Thanks, friend. Thanks, Michael. I'll see you soon. And now for today's mea culpa. While China is closing its doors to the world due to tough COVID restrictions and putting down protesters like sick pets, we here in the United States, we're opening up again. Blame it on the vaccine, Dr. Fauci, or any of the other many factors that made up our COVID response. But according to President Biden, we are back, baby. Those are his words, not mine. But can't you hear him saying it? We're back, baby. Anyway, as proof that we've weathered the storm, the White House hosted its first state dinner since Biden took office. The Trumps only had two state dinners, and due to the pandemic, they had to cancel on the king and queen of Spain. Wah wah! But the Bidens have revived the tradition with an incredible state dinner in honor of France that featured the French president and his wife, the fashionable Macrons, and a whole lot of other people that mostly look shell-shocked and amazed to be guests at such a historic event. And like that, Bill Hader, character on SNL, used to say, this party has everything. Though Fox News had nothing good to say about the dinner and burned precious airtime bitching about the Biden serving lobster and with butter at their own party, no less. I mean, seriously, the fucking shame of it. Apparently, only the elites eat lobster and the rest of America gets none. But Fox News, they can go fuck themselves or at least lighten the fuck up a little because state dinners are like the White House pulling a rabbit out of its hat. They are magic. It puts a pleasant face on geopolitical differences on all the sticking points and the concerns that must eventually be addressed. And for just one night, everyone cleans up and they play nice. Bloodthirsty politicians have to suck it up and be civil. I mean, civil for once. Flags are raised and I imagine toasts are made. But why, you might ask, is it so important to have state dinners with fancy people dressed up and wearing fancy clothes? Why? Because it's the exact opposite of what's going on in Russia, for instance, where Friday, the news out of Moscow was that Putin fell down a flight of stairs and literally shit himself. Now, you won't see Putin hobnobbing with the Glutari at any time soon, and no one is going to an awesome party at the Kremlin with the likes of Anna Winter or Baz Luhrmann ever. At this state dinner, Hunter Biden rubbed elbows with his soon-to-be worst nightmare, Kevin McCarthy. Janet Yellen hung out with John Baptiste, who was also there to entertain and by all accounts, killed it. At the Biden state dinner, there were out gay couples, and not just Chester and Pete. 
there were more. There were children present and uber cool French people like shoe designer Christian Laboutine, who conversed in French with Chuck Schumer all night. I mean, personally, who the fuck knew Chuck Schumer speaks French? I mean, who knew? John Legend was there with his pregnant wife, Christy Teigen, and I bet she looked beautiful too. And optics at a party like this, they matter. It's a chance to show the world that this is who we are. It shows off our culture, not our culture wars. And people dance too, till the wee hours, I bet. John Travolta has said many times that one of the greatest nights of his life was in 1985 when he danced with Princess Diana at a Reagan state dinner. Nancy set them up. I understand that Jill Biden is a great hostess too. And just as an aside, Joe Biden. I mean, where the fuck does that guy get so much energy? It's both impressive and terrifying. I mean, personally, I'm half his age and I don't have half as much. But you know me, I'm not much for fluff, but just hearing about this dinner made me love this thing about our country, about our youth and our ambition, our future and our past. State dinners reflect some part of the American dream, like Reagan's shiny city on the hill. Most of us would show up there and not know how to hold our goddamn fork. But the spectacle of America at its best while entertaining luminaries from around the world, I mean, that would be something to see. And as always, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Minus Touch, and LSJ Media, written by Jimmy Jelinek and Paula Killen. Our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustad, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth.